Alright, well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, enough about my haircut. Um, today actually is the commemoration of Joanna, Mary, and Salome, the myrrh bearers. Uh, and uh, I'm reading from the Treasury of Daily Prayer here, and that's what our prayer of the day is going to be about, so I might as well give you some background here. Uh, known in some traditions as the faithful women, the, the, excuse me, the, the visit of these three persons and other women to the tomb of Jesus on the first Easter morning is noted in the gospel records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Joanna was the wife of Chuza, a steward in Herod's household. Mary, the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, was another of the women who faithfully provided care for Jesus and his disciples from the time of his Galilean, uh, from the time of his Galilean um, ministry through his burial after the crucifixion. Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, joined with the women both at the cross and in bringing the spices to the garden tomb. These faithful women have been honored in the church through the centuries as examples of humble and devoted service to the Lord. So with that, let us pray. Mighty God, your crucified and buried son did not, did not remain in the tomb for long. Give us joy in the tasks set before us that we might carry out faithful acts of service as did Joanna, Mary, and 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 Salome, offering to you the sweet perfume of our grateful hearts, so that we too may see the glory of your of your 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 resurrection and proclaim the good news with unrestrained. Eagerness and and fervor worked in us through our Lord Jesus Christ, who rose and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in session nine, uh, page thirty-six of uh, your books. There, study or session nine, peace with God. Okay, we're looking specifically at Romans 5, uh, verses 1 through 11 here, okay? Um, and uh, let's just dive right in. It's, uh, we're going to be talking more about universal justification and about how because God has declared us righteous through Christ, we now live at peace with him, okay? Okay. Um, and before we begin, actually, uh, a quick note. Y'all remember when we first started this? There's, there's this portion at the beginning of our packet, or at the beginning of our books, on page 7. Just kind of keep a thumb or a finger on page 36 there. But if you go back to page 7, you'll see uh, a basic outline of the book of Romans. And you see that Romans 1 through 4 uh, is a certain... Uh, section and now we're getting into Romans 5 through 8 okay uh, and next will be 9 through 11 and then 12 through 16 but in Romans 5 through 8 you have this picture of a person who looks like they're in the middle of the pool right as a baptism 
and the Holy Spirit is hovering over them like a dove, right? So, um, and they are, uh, they live to God. Uh, through, though the sinful nature still tempts you, Christ gives you his Holy Spirit and victory over sin, death, and the power of the devil, right? So um, it teaches that through baptism, God gives us new birth in the Holy Spirit, and we now share in Christ's victory over our sinful flesh, and sin now cannot dominate and destroy us. So that's some, some comfort there, and that's what's reiterated throughout these chapters, uh, and, and you see that it's rooted in baptism, right? Something to keep in mind as we, as we go forward, okay? Um, all right, let's begin with, the, with our study. Um, who would like to read for us, starting off? Chapter 5 marks a significant shift in Paul's presentation. Up to this point, he has been focusing on the topics of righteousness. Who is righteousness, and how does one become righteous? <coughs> Rome 5 through 8 changes focus to the life that results from being righteous by faith. Paul now emphasizes the benefits that justification through faith in Christ gives peace, hope, victory over death, love of God, etc. In other words, Paul describes here how the reception of God's righteousness by faith leads to a new and eternal life. Paul begins by writing, because we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This declaration has many tangibles and wonderful results in the life of the Christian. Paul first highlights peace with God. Note that the Greek noun, erin, draws on the rich Old Testament and Jewish emphasis on the Hebrew word of greeting, shalom. We are no longer enemies of God who faced his wrath. Romans 1 verse 18 through 3, I mean through mm -hmm. chapter 3, verse 20. But are reconciled with God and are at peace. This is a present reality, not merely something that we look forward to at the end of time. This peace was not accomplished through our negotiation or as part of the spoils from our victory, but is a peace accomplished through Christ. Okay. So what does Paul's phrase, peace with God, bring to mind for you as a believer? And then describe the difference this makes for you each day. So y'all you'll have some time to put something down, right? So what does Paul's phrase, peace with God, bring to mind for you as a believer? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul says that later on in the book, right? Yeah, so, so nothing can separate us because we are now at peace. We're no longer the enemies of God. Yeah. Anybody else have, have anything there for you? I have justification brings peace with God. Yeah. Yeah, we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. We are no longer counted as the unrighteous children of wrath, as Paul says later on in Ephesians, right? So... Um, uh, anybody else have anything else? You no longer have to fear God's punishment. Yeah, 
the wrath of God that is for all who sin and are unrepentant doesn't have anything to do with us anymore because we believe that Christ has paid the price, right? Yeah, God's wrath has been satiated, as we would say, you know. His wrath is, is, is uh, calmed, and it is done away with because it has been satisfied in Christ. Yeah. Anybody else have anything for that? Because this is going to mean something different for different people, right? Different people are going to feel peace in a different way. What do you all think? How does this... Yeah, go ahead. You know, we're always saying the peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh And (laughs) if we can't understand it, you know... (laughs) Yeah. It's... It's beyond our comprehension, I think, you know. It is. Um, in fact, I say that... Um, you think it was me up here. Yeah. long arms. Yeah. Your pencils, that's good. Um, put them to work. <laughs> um, yeah, the peace that surpasses all understanding. I say that every week with... Uh, my my sermons, right? Do y'all do y'all know where that comes from? Why is that not coming? The Bible. It comes from the Bible. <laughs> it comes from the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not Romans. <laughs> no, it's Romans chapter one. It's another one of Paul's epistles. In fact, I'll turn to it right now because typically in our hymnal, uh, I think as a part of Divine Service Setting Three. Right, it says the pastor will end a sermon with this, um, and he says, and, and a pastor says, "Yeah, I thought it was Philippians." All right, the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And any anytime there's something from the Bible, you can see there's a little small mark there at the bottom to show you where it's from. Philippians four seven, and um, yeah, it says after the sermon, the pastor may say, you know, different. Pastors say different things when they close a sermon. Um, it just depends on it, whatever they want to do. But that's a good one to do, right? Because at the end of a sermon, you should have peace. Um, unless you've been rightfully convicted and, and you will gain peace from trusting in God and uh, the gospel proclamation, right? Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, uh, the peace that surpasses all understanding. I mean... It passes, it passes all understanding. We can't fully comprehend it, but we can at least say, I am at peace, right? I don't get it, but it, it's such a great thing that it's beyond me. You know, it's beyond me that God is now no longer wrathful against me, that he loves me, and it's not because I've done anything. It's what he's done for me, right? And I just simply trust that he's done these things, right? Um, and that... It surpasses all understanding that simply by believing the Word of God, simply by uh, receiving the faith that is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive all kinds of good things. Uh, Eternal life, salvation, freedom from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Uh, We we now have a way to resist uh, 
the the sinful flesh where we didn't before. Like we could say we did, but we just kidding ourselves, right? It's like I, you know, it's just like well, as long as I just don't do dot 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 for the rest of my life, I'll be okay. It's like well, whenever you don't do that one thing, something else fills its place, right? It's just like well, I'm gonna stop being jealous about other people. And when you stop being jealous about other people, then all of a sudden you start. I don't know, uh, you start slandering or you start uh, being angry or whatever, you know, something else fills the gap. And every time you try and take away something on your own, your sinful flesh fills the gap with some other kind of sin or vice or uh, passion of the flesh. And, and, you know, when we look at it only as what we do, it's not good enough, right? We have to trust in Christ. We have to believe that peace is given to us. Um, and that God, there you go, you're okay, uh, uh, let me check mine real quick, yep, okay, uh, yeah, so the forgiveness through Christ takes away guilt, right, the forgiveness of Christ takes away guilt, there's forgiveness for that, with the phone, right, uh, I forgive you, it's all good, uh, we live in God's grace, so, the thing is, is that because forgiveness through Christ takes away our guilt, we no longer fear God's wrath. You know, we no longer fear the punishment for sin. And the difference for the, that this makes for you each day, I mean, if you lived your life every day knowing, waking up and all of a sudden the first thought in your mind wasn't, oh, these are all the things I've got to do, or, oh, so-and-so's mad at me, or, you know, oh, these are the struggles I have ahead of me. If the first thought in your mind is, God is at peace with me, what kind of difference might that make for your day if you thought about that the first thing when you woke up? How might that change your day? Make a happy day. That's a great day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... My day starts with waking up, making sure what day it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, then it's, and then you know what the answer to that day is? You know what the answer to that question is? is this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord shall be praised. Right? Because we are at peace with God now. Yeah. So it makes a big difference to know that we're at peace with God, that... Um, we are forgiven, right? We live as baptized children of God now. So, um, so we see that uh, Paul begins with uh, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we move on here. Second, Paul also stresses the present result, uh, the present results of justification, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. That's chapter 5, verse 2. The phrase implies ritual access to God's gracious presence as occurs in worship through God's word and sacraments. Think also of the Old Testament temple. And once again, the undeserved and... Excuse me. The undeserved... Um, the undeserved and... 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 Um, unmerited aspect of this status before God is emphasized with the mention of grace. So how do the blessings of worship service contribute to uh, peace with God in your life? Mm -hmm. 
Just hearing the word of God. Hearing the word of God. Which which word of God is that that uh, grants you peace? It reminds us of the peace when you say, "Peace be with you." <laughs> yeah, yeah. When well, when, the blessing at the end of the service always gives the uh, a peace. The, the Lord benediction. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and gracious unto you. Mm-hmm. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon you and gives you peace. That always, I like that. Yeah, it's a great one. I walk out, I like that. That makes me smile. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> the ironic benediction, not the ironic benediction, but the ironic, because that's what uh, that's what Aaron was given to say to the people, right? Um, and uh, and so it's kind of interesting that we still say what's part of Old Testament ceremony, even though you know we live as well, not necessarily New Testament people, but in the New Covenant, right? Uh, so it's kind of interesting how we still have that tie to the Old Testament and the temple on some level, not every level, right? We don't make sacrifices with lambs and bulls and goats and uh, pigeons and things like that, right? Um, the church is not a slaughterhouse as the temple once was. Um, that's, that's being a bit crass. I'm sure it smelled that way, you know? You had to sacrifice with blood, but now the blood of Christ has been, made, has, has been shed for all people, for all time, and that uh, his blood made the payment for sin once for all. And we've talked about this before, right? Um, when we went through the book of Hebrews, uh, how the church is set up like, in some like manner, like the temple, right? Um, that we have the, the sanctuary is where the people gather. It's the court where everybody would gather. It's similar to that. You all know what I'm talking about? So like in the temple court, you would have the actual, you have the court where everybody was. And then there was the temple where only the priests could go. But then inside the, inside the temple, there was the place where only the high priest could go on the most holy day of the year, which is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so, uh, or some people say Yom Kippur. I don't know, that's kind of funny. So anyways, uh, they, would, they would go in there, and, and now our sanctuary and our tradition is that our sanctuaries are set up like the temple in some respect, where you have the nave where everybody gathers, and then... And, and then you have the, the chancel is the Holy of Holies, where the pastor goes in and acts in the stead of Christ uh, to present the gifts of God to the people. And the only sacrifice that we present now is sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, right? God still gives these things freely. He gives his body and his blood freely uh, for you to eat and drink. It's not that the ushers are going down the aisle going, $5 for communion, $5 for communion, you know. Give more if your heart desires, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's just, it's one of those things of where uh, God gives freely to all people that believe that he is giving his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins in this place, right? And that is supposed to give you peace. Everything in the divine service is meant to deliver God's peace to you in word and sacrament, right? It's why we Lutherans make such a big deal about word and sacrament, uh, because God's grace just should pour forth uh, like, like, 
like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, it's just there's so much grace, so much, um, so much grace, so much forgiveness that you don't even know what to do with all of it. Right. Um, that is to say also, though, that with with grace or before grace comes the understanding how much we need grace, too. So you got to have confession absolution. Uh, you know, if you go to a church, this is just a little bit of pastoral care advice. If you go to a church that does not have confession and absolution before Holy Communion, that's that's not a good thing, right? You need to be absolved of your sin and you need to understand at least basically what it is, why you're receiving the body and blood of Christ. It's not just it's not just because this is what we do, but it's because you need it, right? You need the forgiveness of sins in the body and blood of Christ. So for your peace, for your salvation and comfort, right? God is acting in this place uh, through the means of grace. Um, so I could go on and on and on about that. Do you have any questions about that? Or do you want to add to that how the blessings of worship, and specifically the divine service, uh, contribute to peace with God in your life? Well, I feel mm -hmm. when I leave church that uh, the Holy Spirit has clear my mind to the conflicts of the world. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Thanks be to God. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah I, I remember before I became a pastor, I was, I was like a youth leader. And uh, at the church that I was at before, there was somebody, I think at a staff meeting, saying something like, was it a staff meeting? Or maybe it was a conversation. I can't remember. But somebody who was like a volunteer, um, it, was, it was some discussion about what to have in the service and what not as far as music or da-da-da-da. And um, it all came kind of down to preference. And somebody said, but we want people to leave church happy. <coughs> and I said, well, hopefully they are because of the word of sacraments, you know? I mean, yeah, the hymns are wonderful, and we should have hymns that bring joy and preach the word to us to reinforce the comfort we have now in Christ. But it's also just like, well, that, that seems to be a big, like, sticking point for us in the Missouri Synod you got and I'm not going to go into it too much but you have you have things that kind of take away from the service and as some people might say you know you have you have rock bands and rock bands and dancing girls uh, because it makes people happy and it's like well maybe you can go do that some other time <laughs> not necessarily on Sunday right um, so it's it's this thing of like uh, we want people to be joyful we want people to have peace and we want to convey the weight that this holds too right that worship is a very serious thing but it's not a grave thing to where we always have to be downcast and saying i'm going through the motions because this is what we do but we say no i'm doing these things because it brings me joy to know that god is working right now that he's doing all these things for me right uh, that even if we didn't have the beautiful sanctuary we have, even if we were in the middle of a field and we just had a folding table and the communion set, God is still there, right? And God is still working in his word and his sacrament, right? And that's what brings us peace. That's what brings us joy. And that's another thing. I would like for us to try and say more of like, instead of, instead of saying we should be happy, maybe we should say we should be joyful. 
right? We should be joyful because this is a huge distinction that helped me out a lot uh, was, was when someone said, you, happiness is different from joy. Joy is so much greater than happiness. You can be, you can be in the middle of like, uh, what is it? You could be in the middle of, of losing a loved one or you've lost your job or, you know, someone just insulted you or, you know, all kinds of bad things can happen to you. You're probably not going to be happy, but you can still be joyful, right? You can still have the joy of the Lord in the midst of sadness, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute here with the theology of the cross, right? So you can still have joy, and we want people to have that joy that comes from God, right? So uh, any other thoughts on that? I heard. Did I open up a can of worms? No. <laughs> I guess it was um, during pandemic, and we were listening to our church, but I was also listening to Lamb of God there in Flower Mound. Yeah. And he said joy. Yes. Joy means putting Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. That's very nice. I think that's nice. That kind of stuck with me. Yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice, uh, what do they call that? It's not an anagram, it's a... Acronym. Acronym, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a nice acronym. Jesus yeah. first, others second, yourself last. That's, yeah. that's what joy is about. That's very interesting. I kind of like that. Yeah. 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 That's a nice way to remember it. And, yeah, I mean, that's what I try to remember, too, um, as, a, as a pastor, remembering that my obligations are first to God as a Christian, and then to others in the sense of my wife and my children and then others in the church and things like that, you know, and then I'm, I'm at the end. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't mean that I can't be served by God in the midst of all those things. Cause I can be, and I am when you serve other people in some sense, God is also serving you. That's one of those things I'm really grateful for my vicarage supervisor teaching me, uh, when I was, uh, in Ohio that I told him, I was like, I'm just having a tough day. It's a rough day. I'm just not getting anything done that I want to get done. I'm focused on these little tiny little things, and this day, this day is just going to be lost. And he goes, "Go visit somebody." And I said, "What do you mean, go visit somebody?" He, he he said, "Get out of the church. Go see somebody at their home. Go call somebody up that needs to be seen. That's just, that's that's um, shut in, and go see them." And I said, I mean, that's a good thing, but what are you saying that for me right now? And he said, I always find that when I'm really down on myself, the best thing to help me is to go serve somebody else because you're bringing the word of God to them and they in in return bless you with with their gratefulness, you know? It's a wonderful thing. And and, um, I think we as Lutherans kind of shy away from that understanding because we don't want people to get mixed signals about why we serve people. We serve people, we love others because Christ first loved us. But there is a reward in receiving gratefulness from other people. And there's also a reward when somebody's not very grateful and yet you know that you did the right thing in serving them, right? So that's that's just part of it. And yeah, so I like that. Joy, putting Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Yeah, being selfless, it's a good thing. Um, all right, so 
What memorable places in the worship service of your congregation highlight God's peace and open access to his grace? What parts can you think of? Of the absolution. Confession absolution, yeah. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, right? Absolutely. Any other place? Ah, uh, very nice. Yeah, I I would say like the entire service of the sacrament, Me right? Too. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, the consecration of the elements, uh, you know, where Jesus says, um, take, eat, this is my body given for you, right? Take, drink, this is my body. Sorry, this is my blood. And, um, and one thing I've, I don't know, have y'all noticed how I've, taken, I've, I've sort of shifted a little bit in how I give out the elements now. Y'all know what I say, how I change things a little bit? I'm trying to keep y'all on your toes. Uh, <laughs> a little sneaky, yeah, but it's all to teach, right? Remember that I don't, I, I try not to do anything in the service that's going to be anything other than what you need to know about Jesus and teach you good things, right? So, Diane, you're nodding your head. You're well, I just about know something. that I've noticed you were, when you would take communion yourself, you used to do it back behind the altar. Yes. Now I've noticed you doing it in front of the altar. Yeah. That has to mean something. It means, well, for, first of all, people kept asking me what I was doing back there, right? Oh, yeah. People kept asking what I was doing. So so instead, I turned around, and and, and like, like everybody else, I knelt and received the sacrament uh, and, and I do that now so that people can see that's what I'm doing when I'm kneeling at that part um, just like everybody else I remember Manita asking you that what are you what are you doing back yeah, there? Do <laughs> what are you doing back there do you like consistently forget something every Sunday and you're picking it up from behind the altar was well, like, no. I was going to preach you were going to bump your head on those drawers we got to do something about those drawers. They keep popping out. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, 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 I do that so y'all see that I'm receiving these things and and um, uh, that I'm just like everybody else in that sense. And before I serve, I need to be served by Christ, right? Uh, and so that's a um, that's a that's a very historic practice that fell out of practice for a long time. But um, we're gaining it back, I think. Uh, that was something I used to do at Luther's time, and it fell by the wayside for some reason or other. I'm not going to say why. I really don't know. But now it's coming back. And I think it's a nice thing to show the people that the pastor needs to receive uh, before he can serve other people, right? And then there's the other thing that I was going to say. That's, that's, that's a good catch. Um, can I and, have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Before you go on. Sure. Why don't you let an elder give you communion? Good question. Um, My so, friend Glenda, when we bring to church, she asked me that. Yeah. I said, I don't know. That's a good question. So I was wondering myself, because that, that's how I was taught uh, that the pastor communes himself. It's actually in the altar book, the pastor communes himself. And then, and that's been, it's been a practice that, um, like I said, was around during like Luther's time because it's a traditional practice, but then for some reason it fell out of practice. Like I said, I don't know why. 
Uh, we get that from the Lutheran Confessions, and I can't remember exactly where. I think it's in the Augsburg Confession, where it talks about how the celebrant, the person who, uh, the man who uh, presides over the sacrament, he um, he receives, and then he gives out to the deacons and the presbyters and things like that. So whoever is serving along with him they receive from his hand after he's received from his own. And, and um, what that does, actually, it's a, it's, it's a better practice in that, um, and, I, and I didn't even think about this until another seasoned pastor told me this. He said, sometimes you, as the pastor, just like everybody else, read Reckon in your own conscience you should not receive the sacrament for some reason because something is unreconciled that's, that you still have to go and talk to somebody or be reconciled with somebody before you receive the sacrament. And as the pastor, the one who is the steward of the mysteries, as it were, right, steward of sacraments, you make that determination and you don't put that responsibility on the elder. That, um, that you need to be able to, uh, by your own reckoning and your own conscience, be able to say, I'm just not going to receive today because something else needs to take place first. Reconciliation has to happen. As opposed to just going through the motions and having the elder go ahead and communion because that's what you always do. And instead of actually divulging to the elder something about that shouldn't be divulged, right? Or giving them reason to think that something is wrong when, you know, when it shouldn't be given an offense, right? You see what I'm saying? That's one reason. And um, there used to be a practice in the Missouri Synod that pastors didn't receive communion until the Winkle or the circuit meeting. That was a practice because, um, like, the pastors would always just serve other people and then they would receive from another pastor at the circuit meeting. And that was done for a pious reason, but I think it was, it was um, a little, it wasn't necessarily a, a, the best practice, I'll say that. Like, I can understand why they did it, but at the same time, the pastor needs grace just like everybody else. And there was a practice, and it's even in our confessions, that the pastor should receive from his own hand. Because it's not he who's serving himself, it's Christ who's serving him, right? So it's just, it's a lot of stuff that you probably never thought about. So give it time to sink in. It's stuff that even I kind of, not necessarily wrestle with, but I'm digesting. Um, because there are practices that people have gone along with for their entire lives, or they've seen pastors do their entire lives, and then when some, and all of a sudden, when a young whippersnapper pastor comes in and does something completely different, everybody just kind of goes, what is going on? Does that mean that my pastor was doing the wrong thing the whole time? It's like, no, that's not, that's not the case. But there are, there are certain things that we should be aware of, and that there are certain practices that have fallen out of, not favor, but practice that... Maybe we should reevaluate and see about bringing back in because they do teach good things, right? Um, one thing that I was going to get to is that what I say is that, and I didn't realize this. Uh, I saw this from a pastor that's uh, up in Fort Wayne that that actually married me and Amelia. 
Um, and he has a video series online about how to conduct the divine service by yourself as a pastor and things like that. And they have their own practices. And he's like, it's going to probably be different in some, in some respects for your church. He said, but one thing that I like that I would stress to the pastors when they're distributing the elements is he said, we've gotten into this practice of saying, um, and maybe it's in the hymnal. I don't know why, or I don't know if it is. Sorry. See, if you actually look at the hymnal and you see what the pastor should say while he's distributing the elements, I always say something slightly different, mainly because I need to get through it. <laughs> but um, usually in the hymnal it says, um, well, it says in the hymnal, take, eat, this is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given into death for your sins. Take, drink, this is the true blood, right? Or the true body of Christ, the true blood of Christ shed for you, that sort of thing. I've switched it, though. Um, I simply now, if you pay attention uh, to me now that I'm telling you, it's okay if you haven't noticed since then. But when I give out the elements now, I try to say, take, eat, the body of Christ given for you. Take, eat, take, drink, the blood of Christ shed for you. And he had a good point, and I was like, it's kind of a funny way to put it. And you may think I'm nitpicking, but um, he said... Uh, he said, um, people need to be in this, you know, we shouldn't talk all about experience, but it is an experience to go and receive the body and blood of Christ. And he said, I found that people get knocked out of the experience when the pastor is saying, and some pastors emphasize more than others, the true body of Christ or the true blood of Christ. And, and he made a point and he said, what, why are you telling me this is the true pencil or something, you know? It's like, just give me the body and blood, right? I was like, that's kind of a funny, <laughs> it's like, why are you saying it's the true body and blood of Christ? It's like, I see the point, but I'm just going to say, it's the blood of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's plain as day. Here you go. <laughs> I don't need to add any other words to make it so. It just is, right? It is because Christ makes it so. And me saying it's the true body, it's the true blood, it's like... I get it, but I, I'm just seeing how it works. I'm seeing how it works by shifting it around a little bit. Um, and, uh, uh, and then also when I give the, dis the dismissal at the end, I'm trying to say, and now this body and blood of our Lord and Savior, not the true body and blood of Christ. I'm just trying to say the body and blood of Christ um, strengthen and preserve you into body and, and to life everlasting, right? Um, so you may think I'm nitpicking, but... They'll pay me to think about these things, so I gotta think about these things, right? Um, yeah, so anyways. So there are memorable places in the worship service. We have the, the confession absolution, the service of the sacrament, the words of institution, the Agnus Dei, right? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the feast, I love This is the feast, yeah, right? That it's a feast of victory. It's a feast of of comfort and salvation, right? So, I was yeah. wondering, couldn't we put that song like right before we take communion? <laughs> like, yeah, you could. This is the feast that the. Uh -huh. Yeah, you could. Yeah, I mean, and some some churches that uh, some some churches rearrange the service and they make their own bulletins and things like that. They do that. I, mean, yeah. I, I think. Um, yeah, you could do that. Yeah, but, yeah, you're making more work for me now, so I don't know uh, <laughs> Did they do that? Uh, no, the, I was just 
Yeah. Normally we just did the divine service setting three. I think we did like divine service setting one, like yeah, just on like special occasions. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And different churches do it differently, and they yeah. cycle through the things differently. So yeah, yeah. This is the feast. Oh, it's funny how different it is between setting one and setting two. So, anyways, we won't get into that difference. Um, so, yeah, there are many different uh, you know places in the service where you receive God's peace, and it highlights that for you. You know, um, uh, like the offertory for Divine Service One, I think is very nice. Um, I really love the one from Divine Service Three, but the one from One is good. You know. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call on the name of the Lord. I'll sing it all before I'm done uh, trying to find it. Yeah, so um, I will take the cup of salvation. <sighs> Where is it? <laughs> and will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Right? Coming from Psalm 116. So yeah, there's tons of places in the divine service that can grant you peace, right? All right. Any other thoughts on that? You know, I, I, would, I always understood that when the pastor's facing the altar, he's pleading on our behalf. But when it faces us, he's he's giving us the word of God, our speaking mm -hmm. on behalf of the Lord. So, yeah. uh, understanding that, mm -hmm. when you take communion, you're, which way are you facing? I mean, you're facing now I'm now I'm facing east. Okay. To receive, yeah, yeah, um, and and yeah, that's that's a good way to think about it. To be honest with you, facing facing the congregation behind the altar is not something that was done until like the nineteen sixties. Wow. Before that, but then that's and that's when the Second Vatican Council happened. You hear like Vatican II, um, a lot of change. It's actually kind of funny. We as Lutherans don't really think we're affected by the Roman Catholic Church all that much, but we actually are uh, because we actually changed certain worship practices because the Roman Catholic Church changed them in uh, the Second Vatican Council as well. Like we, we only had the one-year lectionary that we're on right now until the Roman Church brought up a three-year lectionary, and then the Lutherans said, well, we want to do that too, you know, or... Uh, we only had fixed altars against the wall, and then when, when, the Roman, when the Roman Catholics said, but we're going to have freestanding altars now as an option, and the priests can get behind it or whatever, and the Lutherans like, we want to do that too, you know? Uh, it's kind of funny how that, how that happened. We think that we're not affected by Rome, but we're probably a little more affected than we realize, um, which is not a horrible thing, as long as it doesn't obscure good teaching. Right, as long as it doesn't obscure these things, and I toyed with the idea of pushing the altar against the wall and only having the fixed altar because um, it's it's possible. Um, but I think there's something to people seeing what happens in the service of the sacrament because, like, I, I don't know if I told y'all or the other class when I was on vicarage. Uh, 
he would, uh, my supervisor would talk to the confirmation kids about Holy Communion, and he goes, you guys see what I do on Sundays, right? And they go, no, <laughs> no idea what you're doing up there, because it's a fixed altar, and they don't see him consecrating the elements, they don't see him doing these things, but when you face the people, um, ad populum, as they say, instead of ad orientum, facing either the people or facing east, when you face the people, it, it's a good teaching tool, and they can see what's going on. They see that you're pointing to the body and to the blood, right? So, yeah. You don't realize how much I'm teaching you until I actually tell you how much I'm teaching you. It's great. Um, <laughs> at least how much I'm trying to teach you. <laughs> okay, so let's keep going here. Um, third, so we talked about the first thing of peace, the second... Uh, the present results of justification. And now third, the present results of justification continue to be expressed in uh, chapter 5, verse 2b through verse 5. With the verb form, we are boasting and the noun hope. Our future glorified state, restoration of the glory of God, uh, is so certain in Christ that we are boasting already now in anticipation in, in, uh, we already boasting in in um, the anticipation and are already filled with hope. Moreover, we not only boast in the certain hope of the wonderful glory ahead, but unlike the world, we boast even in our present struggles and sufferings. See that in chapter five, verse three through five. Here, Paul. Um, here, Paul. Um, Paul. Um, um, exhibits the theology of the cross. <gasps> Suffering not only shaped Christ's life, bless you, bless you, bless you, uh, but it also shapes the lives of all his faithful followers. Although suffering results from sin in this world, God uses, God uses suffering for our good, um, for good, um, for good in our lives. It leads to endurance, character, and hope. Therefore, we not only accept the suffering that comes because of our faithfulness to Christ, but we even boast in it. So when you hear someone talking about their suffering, how can you tell whether they are boasting and suffering or whining because of it? What's the difference? <laughs> What's the difference? Oh, I just feel so bad today. My legs are hurting. My, you're just whining and just going on and on and on. And or like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Those kids kept me up all yeah. night. Wanted a cup of water. Almost crying. Oh, my goodness. You know. I've heard it before. Yeah. So what's the difference between whining, which is, you know, kind of a blunt way, to, blunt way of putting it, but I mean, so it is, I guess. What's the difference between whining and boasting in your suffering? How do you boast in suffering? Peace. The peace. So like, if I was to say, so it's clearly whining if I'm saying, uh, just sorry, this, this class is not so great today. I'm just so tired. What's the difference between that and boasting about, about, 
the hardships or whatever that come from being a parent or the hardships from, you know, health problems or hardships of uh, whatever. What's... I'm in dire pain right now, but I'm here. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's not easy for me to be here, but thanks be to God that I am. That's a good one. Oh. What else? How else might you rephrase these things? Well, the stress of work, and you complain about work and everything you have to do, but the blessing of the fact that you have a job, you are able to do these things. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that a big, a big shift for any of this stuff is to say, you know, that boasting in your suffering focuses on the cause of Christ and not on yourself, right? When you whine or you complain about things like, I'm just so tired, I'm hurting, I'm whatever, say, you know what, last night wasn't easy or today's been a little rough. But thanks be to God, even for those things, because he's going to show me something good out of it anyways, because Christ suffered for me. So should I not suffer at all? You know, it's one of those things of like saying, this is just part of it. And thanks be to God that he sees me through it. Right. Well, um, both of them are self-suffering. How's that? Well, if you're boasting... You're saying that God's punish, or God's letting this happen to me to strengthen my faith and for me to be uh, an example for other people to follow and all that kind of stuff, kind of boost your ego. Oh well, yeah, I can see it that way. Yes, yeah, so so you, so so you have to be careful. Right. What your intention is. Yeah. No, I see that. Um, maybe shift that a little bit around to not being concerned about whether or not, like saying those things even when nobody's around, right? I mean, I, I mean thinking those things, believing those things, not, not just saying them out when you're around other people, but say, saying to yourself, it's like, oh, man, I'm so tired. But God's, God's going to see me through it, you know, regardless. You know, you don't have to say it to other people necessarily, but as long as you're believing it, that your suffering is actually producing something. It's not in vain uh, that it is actually producing the endurance and the character and the hope that God promises, right? Um, and we'll talk more a little bit about that here in a second, because the next question is, recall an occasion when you whined instead, uh, when instead you could have boasted like Paul. How might this attitude towards suffering change the life of your congregation? So nobody has to share anything if you don't want to share it, but was there a time in your life when you whined, uh, when instead you could have boasted like Paul? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't have those times, right? Um, yeah. No one's immune. Yeah. Nobody's immune from these things, right? Uh so how might boasting in your suffering, right? As, as Paul says, uh, oh, wrong book here. All right. How might boasting in your suffering or um, otherwise known as like tribulations, right? Um, how might that change the life of your congregation? I think. 
Nobody likes a whiner. <laughs> well, you can put it that way. Yeah, nobody likes a whiner. Um, <laughs> well, sometimes, like on the news, say that, like in West Virginia, where there's all that flooding, people will say we lost everything, but we we saved ourselves, and so it's like, well, good, we start over. It's a yeah. thank God we're alive. Thing. Yeah, be thankful for what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, be be thankful for whatever God gives you. You know, even even the bad things, as Paul as Paul says later on in chapter eight, right? That all things, God works for the good of all things for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Right? Mm-hmm. That a Christian, when they face calamity. They don't say, my life is over, my house is gone, my job is gone, you know, how am I, like, I'm not going to be able to feed my kids, I, I got to give my dog away because I can't even feed him. No, they say, give us this day our daily bread, right? Give us this day our daily bread, let thy will be done, Lord, you know? Um, I, I heard a very faithful thing said by a pastor the other day, now, listen to pastors all the time say things and uh, you know on podcasts and whatever and one of them uh he said he's got 10 kids and he said i talked to my oldest daughter i think he, i think the oldest for him is is his daughter and he said she's 16 and um i told her i said honey if between the 12 of us we only had a couple pieces of bread to sustain ourselves, we'd still give thanks to God for it. And we should, you know, because that's what he's given us. And we'll make it work. And God will see us through no matter what. He will make sure that we will be taken care of. I mean, as Jesus says, are not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And, and, and you know, God, God takes care of the flowers of the field, you know, and the birds of the air. How much more will he take care of you? The height of his creation, and not only that, but his beloved child in the faith, right? So, um, of course, everybody's going to say something different about how this might affect our congregation. Uh, but I, I think that it would help us to look past whatever suffering we're enduring. And that even means on a congregational level, you know, um, it's not something that you like to think about, the congregations like to think about, and thanks be to God, we don't have to think about it. But even if our congregation dwindled down to like 10 people, I pray that we would be able to still say, thanks be to God, even for those 10 people that are still here. And thanks be to God for the opportunity for the word of God to be proclaimed, even amongst those 10 people, where two or more are gathered, right? So, and to say like, you know, well, we're not worried about the numbers not coming in. We're not worried about being able to do whatever. We're just going to say, this is the, this is God's will and thy will be done. Right. Um, not that we should be defeatist. That would probably be in the face of trying all kinds of things and nothing's working and still saying, Lord, we are unworthy servants and we only did what was given us to do. And for some reason, it is according to your good and gracious will. People aren't coming in and help us to accept that, right? Even if we're trying really hard and we're working faithfully and it's not happening, Lord, the harvest will happen in your time, right? Yeah, something like that or saying, um, 
looking past the suffering, enduring, uh, looking to how God is disciplining us as beloved sons. We see that in Hebrews 12, um, uh, where we talked about this when we went through Hebrews, right? Um, in Hebrews 12, I believe St. Paul says, because I, I, I think that St. Paul wrote it, um, or at least it was a sermon he preached. Uh, it says, for, for consider him, that is Jesus Christ, right? For consider Jesus Christ who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure discipline, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline, right? Um, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Right? That it's not easy to have sinful consequences come upon you. Right? I think on some level, our country, you might look at the world and say, this country is literally going to hell in a handbasket, right? All kinds of stuff are happening. And on some level, I, you know, I think that's kind of God's judgment, right? We've for so long been lax in certain ways that God is doing exactly what he promised to do in Romans 1 saying, well, this is what you want. Here you go. See what it gets you, right? And more and more, you're seeing people either fall away from the faith or show that they never really believed or whatever. And just people are living sinful, immoral lives unrepentantly. And you just go, how did this all happen? I don't know. There's probably a lot of explanations for it. But the root cause is sin, right? The root cause is sin. And the reason why God allows these things to happen is so that those who are faithful might be repentant. And those who are not faithful might come to repentance, right? To see life is really bad. How can it get any better? And hopefully someone's there to preach them the gospel, right? Look at 9-11. Mm -hmm. Right after 9-11, churches were packed. Yeah. Yeah. People came back. It's like, oh, no. We better find God again. Yeah. Yeah. But then, sadly, how long ago was 9-11? 21 years ago, and churches are empty again. Empty yeah. again. Yeah. Didn't last long. And you know what? It, that's It's not okay, but that's one of those things we just have to say. Um, we just keep having to pray God's will be done. And part of that is to be there for people when they face calamities in their life 
so that we might be able to say, the church is still here for you, mm-hmm. right? The church is still here Christ, be, because Christ is still here, and it's for you, right? Um, and the suffering is not something that we should focus on as the thing that weighs us down. But whenever you think about carrying your cross, and I like to think about it this way, you know, Jesus says, uh, he who would desire to come after me must pick up his cross and follow me daily. That's what he says in Luke. And yet in Matthew, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because the cross that you carry in your life, while it is painful, it can feel lighter and it should feel lighter understanding that Christ has carried the cross for you, right? That is his yoke. That is his burden. And because it's what he bears, you receive the lightness of the load, right? So you don't carry your cross by yourself, but Christ is helping you along the way, right? And he is really carrying everything for you to the point where you can look in the face of anything, disease, death, disaster, famine, whatever, and say, your yoke is easy and your burden is light, Lord. And even this is passing. It will pass away. It's only for a moment, right? And so when we think about it that way and we focus on the sufferings of Christ and how that affects our sufferings, it makes all the difference in the world, right? It makes all the difference in the world. Um, because then we actually have a way of dealing with it, right? As, as opposed to the, uh, the theologians of glory who simply just want to say, don't worry, just trust in God and everything will be fine. It's like, what about my suffering? Don't worry about it. No, but seriously, I have to pay bills. Don't worry about it. God will give you glory. It's like, no, seriously, how do I handle the hardship? How do I deal with this? This is not easy. And it's just like, well, then just believe. Okay, thanks, I guess. I don't know. It's like that doesn't really do much for me other than, like, I don't know, putting it more on me, right? As opposed to saying, look to Christ. Look and see what he has done. And look how he still helps you, right? He has defeated all those things that weigh you down, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Yeah? So that you can endure. So that you can have these sufferings produce endurance, character, and you have hope in Christ. Yeah? Um, it's, it's contrary to what the world wants to say. The world doesn't understand these things. But those who are born from above in faith and holy baptism, we get it. Right? We get it. So any thoughts about that? Any, any questions about that? No? Okay. Um, it's a lot to digest, so if you have a question come up later, let me know. Romans 5.5 5 shows how the hope of the glory of God comes to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The words has been poured paint an image that calls to mind holy baptism. Although baptism is not the only way that God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, it is the most probable source of this image. 
this connection is supported by the prominence that Paul gives to baptism in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. You know, and, and um, it's true that holy baptism is not the only way, but it is the way that we want to emphasize the most, right? That if you believe, you should be baptized, right? Um, of course, God, God understands if there's some circumstances. Like, I, I always use this kind of analogy, and I don't know if it needs to be revised, but it's like if you're on an airplane with somebody, and um, if you're on an airplane with somebody, and uh, uh, you talk to them about Jesus they never believed before, and they and the Holy Spirit does his work and converts them to faith, and then you say, now you need to be baptized, and they say, okay, great, and then all of a sudden the plane starts going down, and the pilot says, brace for impact, you know, all the stuff like that, and, and you could die if, and if in that moment that person's not baptized but they believe, then they will be saved. But let's say that the pilot gets the plane under control and it levels out and then they land safely and then you say to that person, so you're going to get baptized now? And they say, why? I believe. It doesn't matter anymore, does it? And you go, no, you need to get baptized, right? They go hand in hand, right? They, need, they go hand in hand. It's always really sad to see Baptists folk um, believing and not being baptized because they think it's something that they need to be good enough for. You know, it's like, no, it's a pure gift of God. It's a pure gift of God because like Paul says here, right, that it has been poured into you, right, into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So like everything is just a gift. It's not anything we do. It's all pure gift from God, right? We become children of God in the same way that we become children, right? We didn't choose to be born. Think about it that way. I didn't choose to be born. My kids didn't choose to be born. So how can you choose to be reborn in holy baptism, right? It's something that has to be done for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Have y'all heard of it that way before? <laughs> something to think about. Something to think about. Um, any questions before we go on here? We're almost done. It's a fairly short, short session here. Yeah, go ahead. Just on that, you know, kind of thinking about adult baptism. Mm -hmm. Someone who comes to Christ in faith as an adult. And I guess one of the ways that um, I've thought about that and talked to people about that is you can because of the evilness of our sinful nature in our heart, mm -hmm. I can't make that decision to come to faith mm -hmm. and to be baptized unless God has already planted that faith in my heart. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's that's a great way to describe it. I describe it like that too, uh, if the need calls for it, right? Um, I wouldn't necessarily use the birth metaphor with somebody who wasn't, already familiar with these sort of things. But yeah, um, you're right. I mean, we are dead in our sins and trespasses and dead people can't choose to be alive. You know? um, uh, yeah, so it has to be. It has to be God who does the work. How can you say that it's anything else? Uh, especially when scripture talks that way, you know? Um, yeah, so it's, but it's, but it's like, it's funny when you're talking to people who believe in believer's baptism, you know, to make a decision, stuff like that. It's like Jesus talking to 
it's it's like Jesus talking to 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 Nicodemus. You know, how can does a man have to go back into his mother's womb to be reborn? It's like Jesus just has to say, if you don't understand earthly things, how can you understand spiritual things? You know, um, so it can be frustrating, but it's worth the time and the effort and the patience to work with people on these things because it is important. It's important we get these things right. Um, because I, even, um, even, even recently I've had somebody say, um, you know, they started going back to church because they heard something, <laughs> they heard something on a podcast or something like that about how, um, and it wasn't a Lutheran who said this, but it was somebody that said, God gives you all sorts of things, so you need to give him back something. That's why you go to church. And it was like, so that's why I go back to church now. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, and so I, and, and so I was very, I was patient and said, okay. Um, what can you give God that'll match what he gives you? You know, and it's just like, it's nothing in comparison, but it's all that he desires which is thanks and praise. It's nothing in comparison, but he, but it's what he wants, you know? And he gives you everything. And all you have to say is, thank you. <laughs> you know? Thank you. That's it. Um, and, and I think that shifts the focus away from us and where it should be on Christ, right? And what God does. Yeah, yeah. Keep that focus there. That's what I keep trying to tell people because that's the temptation. Look at yourself. What am I doing? How am I going to be good enough? How will I ever endure? How will I, I, I do this? Instead of saying, I believe that Christ is going to do this for me, or he is going to get me through this. I don't know how. I like to ask him. Maybe I will, right? It's like on Sunday, it's like the apostles or the disciples asking, how can this be done? How can you feed all these thousands of people with these, this tiny, like seven loaves, you know, of bread and a few amount of fish? And it's not that they don't believe, but it's faith that seeks the understanding, you know? Faith seeking understanding and saying, I believe you. How's it going to happen, though? Right? That's a big difference. And that's, that's, that's how we can live, and that's how we ought to live as Christians, for sure. Uh, like, Lord, I believe you're going to get me through this hard time. How are you going to do it, though? I guess I'll just wait and see, right? I guess I'll just wait and see. Um, and trusting in you the whole time, not myself. Yeah? Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what I want to say. Um, because uh, our next session, our next part of this session, the last part here, reconciled while still sinners. Very important. Verses 6 through 11 are the clearest and most abundant testimony to universal justification in this epistle. Notice the repeated emphasis on God's action in Christ taking place before we receive the righteousness of God by faith. This emphasis is especially clear in chapter 5, verse 6. Yet Christ, while we were without strength, according to that powerless time, died for the ones who are the ungodly. There was no righteousness that was in us, no godliness that merited God's action on our behalf. So let's read Romans 5. 8 through 9, and explain how these verses comfort you in the midst of your sins. So who wants to read Romans 5, 8 through 9?
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Yeah. So how do these verses explain or comfort you in the midst of your sins? First of all, does this does this assume that you take your sins lightly? No. No. I mean, why would you need comfort from something that doesn't bother you, right? Yeah. So this is this is obviously when someone is in a state of contrition, that is sorrow, and they're seeking relief and comfort. And so in the midst of feeling sorrow for your sin, this message is proclaimed saying that um, not, let's, let's first of all say what it's not saying. It's not saying don't worry about it, right? It's not saying it's no big deal, just simply those things. It's not saying, um, uh, well, just be happy, don't worry, be happy kind of thing, right? It's not saying, um, it, yeah, basically it's not saying your sins are no big deal. It's saying that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In that he died for us when we didn't even deserve it, right? And so don't think about, so basically it's saying you're right to be afflicted by your sin. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. It is a bad thing to stay there. But know that Christ died for you, right? Know that that comfort is given to you by the blood of Christ. Um, and, it, and, and now you can say your sins are no big deal because they're gone now. Christ has paid for them, right? They need payment, and Christ has made that payment. Right? He has ransomed you from sin, death, and the power of the devil. So it's not saying just like forget about it, but it is saying... Um, forget about it because Christ has already taken care of it. Right? If you don't have that part of what Christ has done, you kind of miss the picture, right? Yeah. Or someone saying, "Don't beat yourself up so so much. It's not so bad what you did." And you go, "Oh man, then what did Jesus die for?" Right? That's a good question to ask. <laughs> but you can say, "Yeah, Christ died for me," um, and that. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So what kind of comfort does that bring? How does that comfort you in the midst of your sin? Well, I wrote, Jesus died for us. Mm -hmm. He thinks of us with joy and happiness. Uh, he wants to be with us in good and hard places. His word speaks life, hope, and peace to us. Yes. That's what I wrote. That's nice. I like that. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Anybody else have anything about how they're comforted by this? Tim, you got something to say? <laughs> Alrighty. 
So anybody else want to chime, chime in on how this might comfort you? Well, we won't face the wrath of God yeah. because Christ intervenes. It's Christ that judges us. Right. And anytime I talk about Judgment Day, which we should as Christians, right? It's, it's a reality for us as well as everybody else. But for us, judgment is a good thing. Uh, because we're not judged according to our works, but according to the works of Christ. So on Judgment Day, we are not condemned, but we're vindicated. Yeah, so that when we see Christ as the judge, we don't, well, like, our sinful flesh sees something scary, but the new man that is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit looks and says, come, Lord Jesus, right? Amen. Come, come quickly. Free me from this sin and this body of death. Because I can't wait till I'm vindicated fully in your sight and in the sight of everyone, right? Yeah. So judgment's a good thing for us. It means reconciliation. It means full vindication, right? It's like when you use that courtroom analogy of uh, the judge telling you that you've been found uh, that you've been found not guilty. You're acquitted of all the charges. You're free to go. Um, judgment Day is like finally the cuffs and the shackles all come off and you get to actually walk out of the courtroom free, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of how it is, although we live now as if that's so, right? Or we should, right? We live now as if that's so because it is a present and uh, it is a present promise that has been fulfilled presently and yet it's full fulfillment is yet to come on the last day. Yeah. Um, so the point is, though, is that uh, long before we ever had faith, right? God's righteousness was there for the taking. And that's the point of, object, of, of uh, universal justification, objective justification, is that the justification for God is present for all people. Christ died for all, right? so that all might be saved. And so that gift is there for anyone to believe in. Um, and it's not from our doing. It happened thousands of years before we were ever born. And it's there for the taking, and not the taking, but the receiving. I'll say that. It's there for the receiving, okay? All it is is that trust in God's word, you know, when God says that it is so, believe it. Um, and I'm trying to say that in such a way that's not putting the emphasis on what you're doing, right? It is simply just when you hear God's word, don't resist and believe, trust in him. He's done all things for you. And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a tricky thing talking about justification and trying to keep it all in the realm of what God does, not what we do and these things like that. But yeah, am I muddying the waters? Is this clear as mud for y'all? Or do y'all need to clarify some things for y'all on this? No? Okay, all this is to say that in the midst of our sins, when we come to church on Sunday, if you want to come talk to me as your pastor and when something's really weighing on your heart that you just can't shake it uh, and you need to hear direct uh, direct absolution for something that 
promise is granted to you because of what Christ has done, right? That the righteousness of God is there for the receiving um, and all by the power of God and the Holy Spirit in faith, right? Um, so he provides the, and promises salvation to every sinner, right? It's for everyone. Unfortunately, not all believe it. Thanks be to God that we do, right? Or that, you know, you can say that specifically, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. And that's a good thing. Um, questions, thoughts, comments? This is, again, another pretty short one. Usually I go like two hours. My goodness. Uh, we're only about an hour and a half, so it's I have good. a comment. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we're taught, or we are preached we are always told to be thankful to God yes ma'am I think we need to say I love you Lord mm -hmm. a lot more than we do because mm -hmm. he needs to hear that too from us that's right he does I think that's a good thing I believe a thought that I'm in yeah yeah um, one I think I said it on Sunday in Sunday school when we were talking about the hymn of the day, which was um, giving praise and glory to God, um, he is our father, right? God likes to talk in familial terminology. And uh, of course, I, I didn't, I, I say this a lot, but you know, fatherhood is still a fairly new thing for me. And it's amazing how wonderful it is when your kids say, I love you. Especially when you say it to them first. Like when I put Charlotte to bed and I say, uh, and, and we say things like, you know, uh, say I love you, God bless you, sweet dreams. And she says all those things back to us. Uh, and that's all God wants. That's what it means to confess the Apostles' Creed. That's what it means to uh, even say things like, Lord have mercy. That... That's what it means to confess. You're just speaking back what God has said to you. And all of that really boils down to God saying, I love you. I've done these things for you. And you simply saying, I love you too. I love you too, Father. Right? Um, Charlotte doesn't say Father. She says Dada. But, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so it's, it's just one of those things. I think you're exactly right, Karen. We should speak back God's love to him because that's what he desires as our father. It's a beautiful thought. Yeah. All right. Um, just to close here, uh, as, as is clear from the parallelism between chapter 5, verse 9 and verse 10, the reality of justification can also be communicated with the language of reconciliation. The direct correspondence between justification and reconciliation helps us to understand how justification is often proclaimed in Scripture without using the words righteousness or justification. See 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 through 21. Okay, so justification communicated with reconciliation, that we need to be reconciled to God, and that's what it means to be made righteous and just. God's sight, because he is righteous and just, right? Any questions on that? Kind of a 
nice way to end it. Okay, so words to remember. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. And to prepare for next time, which will be three weeks from now, because we're going to be out of town. Um, sorry about that. Maybe you can work ahead. We can just like cram all three weeks into one session, right? <laughs> I'm really good at that. Uh, we'll be here all day. Anyways, um, to, to prepare for next time, you have plenty of time to prepare uh, for the session session 10, The Pattern of Death and Life. Read Romans 5, 12 through 21. And read the next session as well and work through those things. But now that you'll have plenty of time to work on them, I expect your answers to be awesome. So, uh, and just like the best thing to where y'all can just give, give me your answers and I can just say, very good, moving on. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Work through it, give it your best shot, and we'll look forward to going through that next time, okay? And y'all y'all, y'all all have the updated schedule, right? Who doesn't have the updated schedule? I handed out last time, right? So, uh, yeah, we won't meet again until uh, the 31st. Uh, yeah, the 31st. So. School starts. Yeah, I know, right? So, I mean, we'll start up our school again. Um, all right, well, I've gone on long enough. <laughs> um, how about let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer then? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.